Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with Bill Arnold. It is Good Friday. And I say that with a pause because of what happens on this day when Jesus went to the cross. It was a good Friday for us, not for him, but certainly for us because he took the sin of the world on the cross. In Romans 10, it says, If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified, and it is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. It is the weekend uh, for all Christians to be celebrating, and we are are thinking about today very thoughtfully of what went on um, at Calvary, and we are uh, deeply moved by what Jesus our Savior would do for us. And I'm going to start off today's show with Robert J. Nash. He's written a book called Last Words, Seven sayings from the heart of Christ on the cross. Take 60 seconds and bring on Rob. It's encouragement and hope for your daily journey. Faith Radio. I was a baby believer when I started listening, and um, I think it's attributed to my growth and my walk. I listen to the Faith Channel all day long. So I even listen, repeat, you know, later in the evening. So It encourages me every single day, and it um, it teaches me. I learn from all your guests as well as everyone else does. We're connecting faith and life together. Faith Radio. It's not just information. It's transformation. You just start loving people like crazy and being generous with your time and your money and your energy and invite people over, ask them questions, listen to them, love them, and then you come back and tell me what happens in a couple months. All of my plans, all of my dreams, I them down all of my it's this Jesus who lives in me, and he gave me a dislocated heart. Faith Radio. If you have ever been at the bedside of a loved one who was dying, you would be pretty concerned, pretty interested in what their final words might be. I bet you always remember that. But when it comes to the last words of the Savior of the world, I think we're even more interested than ever. And the seven sayings from the heart of Christ on the cross, the last words were compiled a book written by Robert Jay Nash. He's my guest on the show today. Rob, welcome. Hey, welcome. Thanks for having me. Yeah. It's uh, nice to meet you, Bill, and yeah. I appreciate your time. You know, it's interesting if you just kind of Google, you know, famous last words of people. It's pretty interesting. There's a lot of weight that goes into yeah. people's last words, and I find it fascinating. I probably read through 50 of them. Did you? Okay. Yeah, some are humorous, some are sobering. Yeah. Uh, Christ, I think, are amazing. And so it was fun to kind of put that together and, and meditate for a long time on what he said. Yeah. Um, and so I, that, yeah, I came up with this book. I love the book and I love uh, the topic. And I'm so glad you're on the show. Um, I know you grew up in Minnesota 
and you're now out in Michigan. So what, six kids? Mm-hmm. You're a busy guy. Yeah, yeah, six kids. I am very busy. We got uh, swimming and tennis, and I mean, they're in the throes of we're every night we're driving everywhere. Yeah, so, yeah, and, and busy and having fun. And you forgot grocery shopping. Oh yeah, we, hours. I think that's it's like two hours to do grocery that's a lot of mouths to feed. Yep, yep, yep. But as we look at the uh, the seven sayings from Christ on the cross, and it's so powerful. And you did a really interesting um, job of sort of coming up with a key word for each one of the sayings. And I would, I'd love to jump mm-hmm. into that today. And as we start to prepare yeah. our hearts and minds for Lent and for Easter, there couldn't be a better time to start meditating on all of these. Yeah, I took a, I, you know, Jesus says seven different things, and I took a word. I'm not great at titles, but I feel like I'm pretty good with words. Yeah. And so I took a key word from the, the sayings to capture what is he saying in that saying, and then explore it in a in a devotional, inspirational kind of way. It's eight chapters, so it's not super long, um, but I went through and I, I found a key word and, uh, and built the actually around some Good Friday messages that I started uh, with a number of years ago and then extended it to kind of get every saying and then a, a kind of conclusion chapter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Jesus is offering all kinds of uh, encouragement. He is, he is modeling incredible things. Um, but I want to kind of go through these one by one because I have my favorite. But let's sure. uh, start with, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. I have a feeling I know what that key word is in that one. Yeah, so I picked forgive, um, and uh, I think Jesus. You know, when I, if I go through suffering and trials and difficulties in my life, my my first gut reaction is to like protect myself. It is to flee. It is to fight back. It is to defend. What does Jesus do? He's pronouncing a prayer to the Lord for forgiveness um, for the Jew and Gentile before Him. It is it it's powerful. It models to us, I think, a heart that we need to have, but it also speaks to us of the heart he has for us through faith in Christ. And so I kind of kick it off with what I think is sequentially, chronologically, the first word of forgiveness there. Rob, wouldn't you say— That's the first one. Yeah. Rob, wouldn't you say that that Jesus, his his default was just kind of being in a state of always forgiving? He was always passing on forgiveness and making that such a key part of his ministry that— it's just so like him to be hanging on a cross, dying, and and petitioning the Father, forgive them. I mean, could you just imagine the emotion? Yeah. Yeah, and that's what I try, I try to do, try to get into that, the emotion of it and kind of the feel of it. I think you're right. I think he's got a different disposition and default position than, you know, my natural bent and proclivity. It is not, it is not that way. And so I want it to be more that way, but... Yeah, it's just amazing. And he actually speaks of forgiveness multiple times, so I try to weave that in there. But yeah, it's amazing. Our Lord is is so kind and so gracious. It is, he's He's so wonderful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And a great reminder for all of us, today we can take action to forgive someone or make an effort to reach out to someone that we need forgiveness from or we need to offer an right. apology to. Um, what a great reminder of this is the default of our Savior. As he was nailed to a cross, bleeding and dying, he still wants to forgive people. That's so powerful, Rob. Yeah. Yeah. Every day is a, a day of mercy. And so, like, if there's someone out there who, you know, thinks I've gone too far, 
his forgiveness is bigger than that. Yeah. And if someone's like holding on to bitterness, today's a day where they could show mercy and grace, looking at Christ and, and considering what he's done, offer that grace and forgiveness to someone else today yeah. as well. Because we sometimes uh, think about, are we in the mood to forgive somebody? You know, if I've had a good night's sleep and a nice steak dinner, <laughs> yeah, I might forget. I might forgive that Rob guy for what he did. But no, not Jesus. He's right. he's hanging he's hanging on the cross, dying. The amount of pain he was in, and he wants forgiveness. Amazing. Hmm. All right, let's move on. Let's move on to the second saying. Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. That's out of Luke chapter twenty-three, verse forty-three. I'm guessing what word came out of that one. I said today. I was kind of, it's right now. That's the, you know, that talk about that grace and forgiveness. Here's a guy who I really focus on that thief next to Christ. The, the, the sayings birthed out of the, this, there's two thieves next to him. You probably remember that. Uh Your listeners probably remember that. Of course. One's railing against him. One's attacking Jesus. The other one comes to his defense. He said, this man's done nothing wrong. In saying that, these guys have done something wrong. They're being crucified for their thievery. And uh, they're an example for all the people to see in this horrible, in this horrible way. And he, then he turns to Jesus and says, will you remember me in paradise? And he says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And I, I try to take the reader into uh, to really consider what, what's going on there, uh, that, that grace and forgiveness. This man has, has nothing to offer. You know, sometimes we think, you know, I, I, you know, he not only had a good day, but I've done pretty well today. You know, I've done my devotions. Um, maybe I've donated to charity. Uh, but when it comes, when it all comes down to it, I think we're more like that thief uh, if we're really true uh, and honest with ourselves. Um, and when we're naked before the Lord, standing before Him, what do we have to offer? We can offer what He offered. He offered uh, that little bit of faith, that seed of faith. And I, the great thing is. He extends this offer not just to him 2,000 years ago, this thief, but to us as well. Um, so it says in First John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. I love that. So yeah. that's, that's the focus of today. Let's, yeah. let's put ourselves in the, in the mindset of this other criminal being crucified and— he says to Jesus, will you remember me? And you think at that point, there is no one in the world that could help me given my situation. And Jesus, he would look at Jesus and say, are you saying that there's something for a person like me? Yeah. And it's so powerful to think, yes, that was what Jesus was offering him in that moment. Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Stunning. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just, yeah, it's it's worshipful, honestly. Yeah. All right, Rob, let's move on mm-hmm. uh, to the next one. Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your yep. mother. That comes out of John 19. Yeah, and so here, okay, this is the third thing he's saying here. And again, I'm astounded. Where's his focus? Where would it be my focus? My focus would be, you know, to be honest, would be more self-word. Uh-huh. That's, again, my struggle. I'm a pastor. I struggle with that. Um, maybe maybe others can relate. Christ, where his focus? It's on this mom, his mom, and, and the kind of provision and care for her. There's your son. And then he turns to this disciple, John, here's your mother. 
Now, a thing that to note here, John has just betrayed him. Sure, he's at the cross, but where was he when Jesus was being taken away? He went running. Where was he when Jesus said, could you pray with me for an hour? He was sleeping. And so Jesus offers this kindness, this compassion, this task um, that, uh, that is broader than just, I think, them. I think there's in here an invitation for us um, to see the compassion of the Lord that's extended to us. There, there was one event, I bring this up uh, you know, briefly, that, that people might remember, where Jesus is, is confronted by his mother and brothers. They're there to kind of corral him and hinder his ministry. And he said, you know who my brother and brothers are? It's those who do the will of God. And, and so we, I think we see expanded here um, that, you know, the, 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 the broad, the breadth of the family of God that we have um, this familiar, familiar relation here, as well as Jesus's compassion to his mom and to this disciple who, who probably is, if, if I was in his shoes, thinking pretty low thoughts of myself and not, not feeling really good. And I'm, I'm struggling. I just betrayed my Lord and here he's dying, you know? So that's what, when I come to behold, that's when I, when I think of behold, look at, look at what's happening here. That's, yeah. so that was the third chapter behold. Yeah. I want to meditate on that just for a second, but let's go to break real quick. Uh, Rob Nash is my guest. We're chatting about his book, last words, seven sayings from the heart of Christ on the cross. We'll take a short break and be right back. the show. So glad to be having Robert J. Nash as my guest. His book is Last Words, Seven Sayings from the Heart of Christ on the Cross. We, uh, right before break, Rob, we were talking about woman, behold your son. And I know woman was not a derogatory term at all, um, because this was his mother and his mother just watched him get crucified. Can you imagine? Yeah, I feel I feel horrible for people who have lost their children. I haven't, I haven't had that experience, mm-hmm. but I try to I try to imagine that as a pastor when I'm preaching, you know, as I come to Sunday morning mm-hmm. or as I wrote this book, I'm trying to think through what is that like? Um, that loss has got to be gut wrenching. And actually, she was given this gift of a prophetic warning um, in the, the temple in Jerusalem early on. The sword will pierce her soul. And here it's coming to fruition. Wow. I, I, that is, that is, that is so painful, but, but Christ's love is, is so compassionate that instead of a self-word, you know, thought, he's extending this outward thought to care for his mother there. I, I, I can't, I don't think there's a dry eye among his believers at that point. I mean, just grief upon grief. Maybe the tree, tears would have run dry at that point. Mm-hmm. It's horrible. Yeah. But his, his love is so great. Yeah. I don't know if you've ever had, you know, uh, you've got six kids, so maybe one of them fell down and skinned their knee. And just when you see them suffering or slightly injured, or maybe you've watched them have an injury greater than a skinned knee, your heart just breaks. And I'm sure your wife would just want to pick them up and hold them and, you know, kiss their boo-boo. And you know what I mean? And then for Jesus' mother to watch him endure the most horrific form of torture and painful death. And then the beauty of him hanging on the cross, providing for this mother of his, 
and saying, John, this is your, behold your mother, and just entrusting those two together. I, I tell you, Rob, that just moves my heart beyond belief. Yeah. yeah you, sp- you expressed that well, uh, in that entrusting. There's just a care and compassion there. Yeah. I mean, that's on his to-do mm-hmm. list as he's dying. It's just unbelievable. What do we learn from that? Mm-hmm. What does that teach us? Stop being so selfish? I, I, I think there's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think so. Yeah. That's, I think so. All right, let's get down to the next one. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, the next one I have is uh, why. Uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, and so now you get this feel like this is more that I can relate to that. I, I, I can relate to that, but you know, that kind of distance. Why is this happening to me kind of thought. But what's unique about this one is it's not just a, a shaking your fist at God. Mm-hmm. There's actually, and, I, and, you, and you're, I, I imagine you're aware of this, and, and many of your listeners are aware that there is a prophetic fulfillment that's happening in this Psalm 22. This is a direct quote from Psalm 22, verse 1. Mm-hmm. And so uh, in the midst of this, I, I do think the Lord, he's experiencing the wrath of God for the, for the sins of the world, for the sin of man. He's experiencing that, this, this kind of turning your back, the, the forsakenness. So there is that experience, but there's also this prophetic word that's being fulfilled. So in his mind, so remember, he's dying of asphyxiation. I think sometimes we think he's bleeding to death or being beaten to death. It, uh, medically, we know that he, he, even to breathe, he has to push himself up on his mm-hmm. hands and his feet. And so each breath, each word has this weight of significance. So when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think he is... <clears throat> He's thinking of all of Psalm 22, which has, they cast lots for my garment. You know, they're mocking him. They pierced him. It has prophetic fulfillments throughout from the beginning to the end. And even and it ends looking forward to uh, the, uh, the, um, the resurrection and the fruit of the nations uh, following him. There's this, there's this prophetic joy at the end. And I think what, with the, the why here, I think what, what I try to do in the book and try to help uh, us think about is he's taking our place at that point. He's doing what we sh- what should be done to us. The wrath of God's being poured out on him and taking our place. He is the, the, the substitute for us, which is another b- beautiful, lovely thing that just grabs my heart and fills me with worship for him. Yeah. Amen to that. All right. What about I thirst? I'd love to hear some more about that. I started looking into thirst and kind of like how much of our, our world's made up of water, our body's made up of water. Um, I didn't put all that in, there, in, our, in the book, but, you know, we're thirsty people, right? We long for, for satisfaction in a lot of different things. And here, Christ, I think there's a prophetic element to it, but there's also this human, humanness to it. So not only do we have the substitute who, who's God the— uh, the God-man who took our place, but you have the Son of Man. You have uh, uh, Jesus became fully man. He took on the, uh, humanity and, in the flesh and was was made like us in every respect, tempted in every way. And here He's thirsting, and 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 so we can resonate with this God who cares so much that He became one of us. Um, where sometimes I think we can feel alone and, and disconnected in the world, but this gives us this connecting point. Um, and so I, I focus on I thirst as a as that that connecting point and to to focus on his humanity of Christ. Mm-hmm. 
All right, we're coming down to the wire here. Let's see if we can't squeeze these last two in in the time we have remaining. Okay, okay. Yeah, it is yeah. finished. Not quite yet, but it is finished. It is finished. Yeah. Yeah, right. So you think maybe this is the last word. It's not the last word. It's finished. Um, you know, I had looked at all the different ways that the cross was, uh, what is he accomplishing on the cross? And I boiled them down into a few different things. And seeing that we are redeemed, we are bought, we are purchased, we are forgiven. He takes away our sin. There's a hope of heaven. There's this, there's this prophetic fulfillment that is, that is found from Genesis to Revelation that is, that is culminating in this, this event on the cross. And so when it's finished, it's finished. And that can, we can take our burdens, all our sin, all our shame, all our guilt, and bring it to the cross today. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's what it, where it is finished. The last word um, is, uh, Father, into your hands I commit your spirit. So with that one, I focus on the fatherhood of God. And there's this interpersonal relationship we see with Christ and the Father. And then well, the beauty of that is the Bible speaks to He is God is our Father through faith in Christ. And so for those of us, you know, I had a, a I have a wonderful earthly father, but nothing compares to the fatherhood of God. And if you've had a bad father, a father who hasn't, you know, done what he's supposed to do, maybe treat you really bad. We have a wonderful heavenly father. How it is through this pivot point in history, this cross that happened, this work on the cross that happened two thousand years ago. And so that's where that chapter comes in, and I, um, I sum up with kind of like a more of a poetic ending, the kind of a, a conclusion. Mm-hmm. Summing up the different words of Christ. You know, Rob, I'm, yeah. look, I'm looking over these these sayings, and it, he starts with "Father, forgive them," but then uh, three later, he's saying, "My God, my God," and he ends with "Father." Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting. Yeah, you, train. you see that? Yeah, it is. He doesn't say. And I think we see there that my Father, my Father, why have you forsaken me? No, there's, and it's that forsaking. Yeah, and so I think there's there you see the the wrath, the judgment. You know, we want justice if we've been sinned against, but there's a justice that isn't in this life that is in the next. But there's also a mercy. The mercy is seen at the cross of Christ, where Jesus gave up His life and experienced, you know, more than just a physical death. There's something spiritual happening here, and 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 that's where I think that. You see this disconnect with God, this Father, the this this brokenness that we deserve, but He took our place in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. These are these are such good observation there. These are such sacred words, and you've tackled them well, uh, Rob. It's been uh, a delight uh, having you on the show and and meeting you and hearing again your Thanks, insights Bill. to these uh, uh, last words, seven sayings from the heart of Christ on the cross. Uh, Robert J. Nash has been my guest. And Rob, uh, have a wonderful uh, Lenten season and happy Easter. I'll be the first to say it nice and early. Hey, thank you. You are. You bet. (laughs) All right. Have a great day. We'll take a short break. We'll be right back with lots more.
All right, welcome back to the show. I'm always delighted when I get a chance to talk to Dr. Ian Paul. He comes to us all the way from the UK, and uh, he's written a wonderful blog on Sefitza, which is his uh, website. You can also just uh, Google his name, Ian Paul, and you'll get right to the website. But he uh, explored what actually happened in the first Holy Week. And here to talk about that is, of course, Dr. Ian Paul. Welcome, Ian. Hi, Bill. Nice to see you. Great thank to be you, with you. Thank you so much. Well, we're all sheltering in place, and uh, you've well, got... Well, it is, exactly. And, and, and the fact, it's ironic, isn't it, that it's, it's much harder to talk to our neighbors, but we can still talk to each other, you know, right across the Atlantic, so... <laughs> <laughs> and you're spending a little bit more time in your garden? I am, yeah. We're really blessed. Um, we've... Um, both my wife and I, before we met, we were very convinced that that when Jesus calls us to know him, he calls us into community. And so we've both really been committed to community community living and uh, always sought to share our home with other people. And that currently our home consists of uh, seven different people. So um, we look after Maggie's parents, who are 87, 89, but we also have a couple of students living with us as well. And one of our children is here, too. So we're, we're quite a little sort of intergenerational community. So uh, that that, that it, 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 it's not boring. There's always things going on, always people to talk to. And I love spending time in the garden. We just had fantastic weather this week as well. So I've been planting lettuce today. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. I'd love to see a picture of the garden at some point. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, thank you. Um, so let's talk about what ha- actually happened in the very first Holy Week. Mm. As we go through the, the gospel accounts, uh, there You've done a beautiful job in your a blog of laying them out. So I'm going to encourage mm. all our listeners to head over there to see the visuals. But mm. let, let's talk about what happened in that first week. Yeah, I think when we read the different gospel accounts, it's very easy to miss the differences and the different emphases because very often we kind of read the story through in the same way we, we do at Christmas. Uh, and of course, although there are variations in wording and in some details, there's striking agreement between all four gospels in the order of the main events. Um, but there's also a couple of puzzles as well. And, and one of the puzzles is um, what scholars have often called the, the Silent Wednesday. Uh, if you actually go through the events uh, as the different Gospels record it, it, it looks as though absolutely nothing happens on Wednesday, which is very strange because the rest of the week seems to be absolutely packed. Mm-hmm. Um, and also uh, one, of the, one of the big differences is between the different accounts of the trial narrative. So particularly in the fourth Gospel, in John's Gospel, the trial is much more detailed. We know we get the details of Jesus' discussion with um, Pilate, uh, whereas in Matthew and Mark, the, the, the trials are much, much briefer. And also, um, there's some there's some problems historically with the way the trial is conducted, because it seems as though Jesus undergoes three different trials in three different places, all in the night, and it's very rushed. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, one of the things that uh, Jewish legal texts say is that if a if a trial is take, takes place at night, it has to be ratified the next day. And so our, our traditional chronology of all the things that happen uh, doesn't actually fit in the timescale we've got. So that raises some interesting issues. And that that's these are the kind of things that have been debated by Bible scholars uh, a long time. Well, uh, Ian, I did not know that if a trial happened at night, it needed to be ratified the next day. So this mm. contributes to the the mm. uh, the kangaroo monkey court that was going on that night. Yeah, yeah. So the question is, you know, ca- can we reconcile the different uh, aspects of the chronology in the different Gospels, and can we understand, you know, where the time goes and and and, and how things have happened? And I was really helped um, uh, a couple of years ago. I read a book by um, uh, an academic here uh, it's called Sir Colin Humphreys, mm-hmm. and uh, he's written a book called The Mystery of the Last Supper. And he he tackles these these issues. What's really interesting about his discussion is that uh, he's an academic and a distinguished academic of that. He's a he's a sir, 
um, but not in theology. He's actually a, a scientist. He's, a, he's, he's an academic in material science, um, but he's a Christian and he's got a real interest in uh, understanding some of these um, biblical questions uh, around the scriptures and how we read them and how we make sense of them. So it is interesting. He comes to this question with the, the, the disciplines of an academic, but he comes with a really fresh angle as well because he's not so committed to one or other position within scholarship. Mm-hmm. Ian, you've got me really interested now in this Silent Wednesday. Mm. And I think uh, Sir Colin Humphrey addressed it as well, didn't he, in his book? Yeah, he did. He did indeed. Yeah. yeah. That's what, for him, that, that's one of the key things. So noticing this, when you read the accounts, everything seems to go quiet in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, he also points out the problem of the Last Supper uh, in terms of understanding what kind of meal it was and when did it happen. Because, of course, I think most of your listeners will be very familiar with the fact that um, we we read about the Last Supper in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and what you might call the institution narrative, where we have the words that Jesus uses, talking about, you know, this is the uh, this is he breaks the bread and says, "This is my body, eat this in remembrance of me," and this is the this is the cup, uh, um, the blood of the new covenant, drink this in remembrance of me, uh, my blood shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins, and then you get to John's gospel and you think, well, do you know John has a real interest in symbolism. He has a real interest in double meanings. So when we see things happening at night in John's gospel, it isn't just the, the time of day, it is that, but you know, there's real significant, symbolic significance. So in chapter three of John's gospel, Nicodemus comes to Jesus in the twilight, in the evening time, mm-hmm. and he, he can't see who Jesus is. So it's, as it were, there's darkness falling literally outside, but there's also darkness still over Nicodemus' eyes. Then in the very next chapter, chapter four of John's gospel, the woman at the well Jesus meets in Samaria, and they're in the in the middle of the day. It's it's midday. It's bright sunshine, and that has significance for her because she's obviously an outcast, so she can't come in the morning when the other women come. But of course, for John, symbolically, she can see who Jesus is. She rushes off to her village and says, "Come, see the man who told me everything I ever did. Could he be the Messiah?" So there's a lovely contrast there, both in the literal timing, but also in the symbolic meaning of the evening of Nicodemus and the uh, the daytime of the woman. And of course, in the Last Supper account in John chapter 13, uh, when Judas betrays Jesus, or when he decides to betray him, he dips the bread in, and then he goes out to turn him over. And, and, and the gospel simply says, and it was night. Of course it was night. Yes, it was the nighttime. He goes out in the stealth of the darkness. But actually, it was the deepest, darkest night of human existence because here the light of the world has come in front of people. And one of his disciples, someone who's seen him close up and personal, is the one who goes and betrays him. So it's a, it's a really, it's the deepest, darkest night in human history. So you'd kind of think that John's got all this symbolic interest going on. And yet... When it comes to chapter 13, and we expect to hear the narrative institution of the Last Supper, then we don't get it. We get Jesus washing the disciples' feet and anticipating his death, and then uh, teaching the disciples in chapters 14, 15, 16, and then his great high priestly prayer in chapter 17. So there's a, there's something strange going on, and that, that's why I think uh, Colin Humphreys was really int- intrigued as to how we reconcile these different things. Mm-hmm. Uh- Ian, I find the Garden of Gethsemane uh, incident so uh, amazing. When Jesus is arrested that night, I don't know how many soldiers showed up to arrest him. Mm. I think the number was pretty high, wasn't it? Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, um, I, I can't remember. Do we get the number specified? Yeah, yeah, I don't think it's specified, but it, it's a it's a big gang showing big up crowd. to arrest him. Yeah. And then when in John's uh, chapter 18, it talks about when Jesus is saying, when Jesus says, I am he, yeah. and, and the troops fall to the ground. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What are you, what are you understanding at that point? Why would the, why would the soldiers be falling to the ground? Well, um, there's a, in a sense, a, a simple personal explanation that his, his confidence, he's not hiding, he's not running away, and they're amazed. But that phrase, I am he, is uh, has huge theological significance in John's Gospel. Mm-hmm. So earlier on, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. Right. I am the bread of life. I am the one who's coming out from heaven. And we just heard in chapter 11, uh, which we read in our churches a couple of weeks ago, um, the, the uh, Jesus going to Bethany, to Martha and Mary, and uh, going to visit Lazarus, who's died. And he says to Martha and Mary, uh, do you believe that your brother will rise again? And Martha gives a very straightforward, traditional Jewish answer. Yes, you know, I know, believe at the end of time, when, you know, the end of this age comes, the dead are raised, that he will be raised to life. And Jesus says to her, I am the resurrection and the life. And that has all sorts of connotations as well, because Jesus there in John's gospel is drawing on the way that the God of Israel has described himself in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 2, when he reveals himself to Moses, Moses sees this strange sign of the burning bush and then suddenly realizes there's something spiritual going on. He's on holy ground, takes his shoes off, and he hears the voice of God calling and commissioning him. And he says, who shall I say uh, is sending me? And the voice, the voice of God says, say, I am. I am. Hmm. In a sense that God isn't defined in any other terms than, than who he is. And um, the the phrase in Hebrew there can be um, understood as being I am in the present tense or I was in the past tense or I will be in the future. Uh, And God communicates to Moses that he is eternal. He is unchangeable. He is not defined by anybody else, by by anything that we can think of. Uh, And that's the language that Jesus picks up in John's account. Uh, In John, I think it's chapter eight, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And he's very explicitly claiming identification with the God of Israel himself. And I think that's the impact that that, uh, that his saying has in John 18. So I am he. He's not just admitting that he is Jesus of Nazareth, they ask, that this is the person they're looking for. I am he. He's drawing together all that weight of understanding of who Jesus is from the whole gospel narrative. And the people uh, and the soldiers are just amazed. Um, it's as if Jesus uh, can easily resist their power. Uh, and in fact, earlier on, when people try to make him king in chapter six, he, he simply walks through the crowd and he's perfectly able to um, resist them. He's perfectly able to call down legions of angels, but he willingly submits to what they're going to do to him, mm-hmm. which is which is which is just extraordinary. Yeah. Ian, let's stay in the Garden of Gethsemane just for a minute. Uh, mm. Peter takes a whack at that soldier's head, probably missed it. He ducked, took his ear off. Uh, Jesus picks up uh, the ear of the soldier named Malchus and mm. puts it back on his head. Uh, is there mm. is there uh, is that symbolic for some reason? I mean, why is he putting his ear back on his head? Um, except for it was nice for him to do that. Uh, well, I I've not understood any particular symbolism um, around that. Was he um, showing the soldier something? Was he uh, demonstrating something to the soldiers that night? Uh, I think he's simply just continuing in his uh, his ministry of healing, okay. and compassion, uh, as as always. Yeah. Um, 
And the other the other interesting thing about John's gospel, we tend to think of the the first three gospels, the synoptic gospels, as being um, more matter of fact and more historical. And um, it's a, for a long time, John's gospel has been read as the spiritual gospel, telling us sort of spiritual truths. So there's been a sense in which we've often read John's gospel and thought that it's all about symbolic significance. But one of the things that's really striking is that, that and, and it's really come to the fore in recent scholarship on the gospel, is that John includes an enormous number of historical details. He, he actually says stuff. He says some stuff simply because it's true. Um, one example is uh, in the wedding at Cana, and there are six stone water jars there, uh, and they're filled with water, and then Jesus turns them into wine. And a lot of people have written, written things about the symbolism of the, the, the six jars and why there are stone jars and what they signify. Actually, the evidence is that it just simply shows that this was happening in that part of the country at that particular time. Uh, once the Romans occupied Judea, then they had the equipment, uh, they had the big lathes where they could turn large stone artifacts, so building columns for their, for their temples and their other buildings. And that meant that for um, uh, very observant Jews, that stone jars were really important. If you made a jar out of clay, and if it became unclean, you had to smash it because there's no way of making a clay jar clean again. Mm. But if you made something of stone and it became unclean, you could actually wash it and cleanse it and reuse it. And so during this particular period, stone artifacts were really important to observant Jews and particularly to priestly families. And we actually know that of the 24 different um, divisions of, of priests who took their turn to be the high priest and to offer the sacrifice, we know that one of those divisions, a family, actually lived in Cana. So it looks like there, John is just telling us some stuff that just happened, and he's telling us it because it it was there. It's a matter of fact. Mm -hmm. And I think this is the same going on here, where in this gospel, we're told the servant's name was Malchus. And one of the other things that John's gospel does is it, it, it actually gives us more names of individuals than the other gospels do. So most of the characters Jesus interacts with, we know their names. And um, when scholars have looked at the proportion of different names in John's gospel, they actually match the proportion of names that we know from inscriptional evidence were around in uh, 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 Israel at the time. So that's all evidence that, yes, John is spiritual. He's telling us the significance of things and the symbol symbolism, but actually he's also giving us some really good, hard historical evidence as well. Mm -hmm. Dr. Ian Paul is my guest. We'll take a little break. We'll be right back with lots more. back to the show. So glad to have Dr. Ian Paul as my guest. He's a theologian and author and speaker and uh, adjunct professor at Fuller, and he's also at St. Nick's in Nottingham. I think I said it right this, uh, not, this time. Not, not at Nottingham. Not, no. Nottingham, we say. Not, Nottingham, yeah, I get that right. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about the, uh, the very first Holy Week and all that actually happened, and I find this uh, to be fascinating. Did you uh, ever struggle with details of that first week that you 
you had to go back and look at time and time again and you're still grappling with it? Um, I've, I've never found that to be a problem. And one of the reasons is that um, although some strands of scholarship have been very quick to say, well, these different things conflict and we can't mm -hmm. reconcile these accounts. And that arises from a couple of concerns. I think one of the concerns is saying, well, do you know the gospel writers aren't trying to give us history, chronological history. They're trying to tell us the meaning of the events and who Jesus is. But there's also been an undercurrent of skepticism about whether or not the gospel accounts were reliable. Um, and so there have been issues where I've really wrestled with the questions. But in fact, it's really helped me to recognize a couple of things. One is that the gospel writers are concerned to tell us the truth, and they don't believe in separating the truth of facts from the truth of significance. And in that sense, um, the gospel writers are functioning in the way that a witness at a trial would do. And again, John's gospel is particularly full of this dynamic of Jesus being put on trial and different witnesses saying different things. And the whole theme of witness is really important in, in that gospel. Um, and, you know, if you're if you're a witness at a trial, and you're called forward, then you do recite the facts of what you've seen, but you always put an interpretation on them. So you see somebody running in a particular direction and you assume they're running for a particular reason, a good reason or a bad reason. And actually, when we're looking at things, when we're, when we're making sense of life, we don't separate the facts from their, their significance and their meaning. And I think the gospel writers are the same. So they're constantly telling us things that happen, but they're constantly telling us in a way that, that, that shows their um, significance. I think what I've also found is that when I've looked at some of the hard cases, and I've done some of those on, on the blog and done some work examples, and people have said, oh, you know, it's it's these are irreconcilable contradictions. When you look carefully, you actually find they can reconcile. Hmm. Um, one of the one of the hardest test cases is is what happens as part of the later Easter narrative is when Judas dies, and it looks like in the Gospels uh, it says one thing in Matthew's Gospel it gives one explanation, and then in the beginning of Acts he gives a second explanation. But actually, when you look at it carefully, they don't in fact conflict. And what what Matthew and Luke are drew, doing is drawing out two different sets of understanding of the significance of Judas's death. And I found that reflecting on my own experience. I, I remember just a, an incident a, little, a couple of months ago where something happened to me on, on a train, on a journey I was going on, and two different people asked me about what happened. And I realized because I was concerned about different things, they were interested in different things, I actually ended up giving the account in two quite different ways. And if you'd written them down, people would have said, hey, you know, Ian's being inconsistent here, but, but it was perfectly easy to reconcile them. And the gospel writers are selective about what they tell us. The Gospels are actually, compared with the literature that we're used to around us, the Gospels are really short works. They're really compressed. And so the Gospel writers are quite selective in what they focus on. So we can see that Matthew, Mark, Luke, John are concerned to focus on different elements of this story. They have a common story and they're drawing out different significances for us. And of course, one of the things, that, again, I'm convinced by by scholarship is that I think it's being more and more widely recognized that when the fourth gospel was written, I think every scholar would, would understand the fourth gospel was being written last. Uh, the writer is writing for people who he assumes have already read the other gospel narratives. Mm. So he doesn't need to repeat what they said. What he does do is fill in some of the details that aren't there. And he fills them in from a particular perspective as well. Well, that's so interesting, Ian. You know, when you look at the way in which the gospel writers were authenticating, uh, when you think about Simon of Cyrene helping Jesus mm. carry the cross, and the reference was made, well, you, you know Simon, he's the father of Rufus and Alexander. And I remember yeah. reading that originally going, well, why is that in there? 
Mm. And then I realized that's kind of how they're authenticating eyewitness accounts. Absolutely. And again, one of the things that we'll never know uh, specifically, because we're unlikely to uncover the historical evidence, but it's extremely likely that that the, the reason why some people are named and some people aren't is because these people may well have been well known in the early Christian communities. Uh, and so that it again authenticates the eyewitness testimony uh, of the gospel. So, you know, the writers are saying, well, this person's quite well known. He was the one who was there. And, and if you want to check out the details with him, then you can do. And I think it's also worth bearing in mind that, again, all the evidence is that whereas perhaps a couple of generations ago, people talked about Matthew's community that he was writing for and Mark's community he was writing for and John's community he was writing for. Actually, the evidence is that these documents were very widely circulated very early on. And, of course, communication in the Roman Empire was you know, as good as it was for another uh, 1,800 years at least. So the Roman roads and travel... Um, it was very easy to communicate between different urban centers. And all the evidence is that the Christians were keeping in touch with each other and they were sharing these stories of Jesus and circulating these documents once they were written. Mm -hmm. And I think I read somewhere that when a prisoner was condemned to death, (laughs) that the Roman soldiers were no longer held accountable for their behavior. In other words, have at it. Right. Okay. And that certainly makes sense of um, what happened to Jesus uh, in his after his trial. And we read that he was um, uh, whipped and scourged, and uh, many people would have died from that. Mm-hmm. And uh, quite remarkable that he survived. And the, the um, scourge they'd have used would have had little pieces of stone or metal in them and would have just lacerated his back uh, and would have done horrible damage and exposed his flesh. And uh, so, yeah, the, the Roman soldiers would have had completely free reign on that. Yeah. Um, I'm curious, you make reference to uh, the two different accounts of Judas, Judas's end of his life. Uh, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yeah, the, the Gospel of Matthew and then uh, the Book of Acts uh, include two different accounts of um, Judas's death. Matthew and Luke uh, are interested in the facts, uh, but they tell them in the different ways, as the Gospel writers often do. And um, for Matthew, he's actually slightly odd when you read about Judas because he's actually jumping ahead to the end of the um, uh, beyond Easter, uh, and it's all a little bit out of order. But Matthew's got this characteristic concern about the fulfillment of Scripture, and in fact, um, Judas's fate is a fulfillment of Jesus' words that Matthew includes earlier on in chapter 26, and he contrasts him with Peter. And he also sees it as the fulfillment of the scripture. So all the way through Matthew's gospel, he's concerned to show that the life of Jesus and all the events around it are the fulfillment of the scriptures. But Luke has, has, has got a different interest in the episode. Um, so he's providing his own eyewitness account. And this little aside about Judas um, fits in uh, to the, the detail that he's filling out. In other words, he's actually pulling together a story and he's being, he's acting like a Roman historiographer who's giving a reliable account. So he's actually making sure that his account is systematic. So the reason why the two gospel writers draw different emphases from the story is because they've got particular narrative concerns in their telling of it. Mm-hmm. So it's not about contradiction. It's about drawing out the significance. And that's why, you know, sometimes it's really helpful. Whenever I'm reading a passage from the gospels, I always have in front of me either a print copy or an electronic copy of what's called a, a synopsis, where the gospel accounts are side by side. And then you can see the things they have in common, but you can also see the really interesting little details that they draw out in their own telling of the story. And often it's those little details which give us a clue to the significance of the events so we can actually see the meaning for ourselves today. Mm. You know, I also bet you have a really organized garage. 
I've got a really organized greenhouse. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, yeah, that's that's probably the same thing. I just uh, I love the way you think. I love the way you lay stuff out. You you inspire me to be a better student. So thank you so much for doing the show. Great to be with you, Bill. Yeah, thank you so much. Have a, a lovely Easter and blessings to your family, Doctor. Thank you, Doctor Ian Paul has been my guest. You can Google his name, Ian Paul. Get right to his website, which is Sefizo. Uh, P-S-E-P-H-I-Z-O dot com. Take a short break and be right back. John 19.19 says, Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Why is a sign placed over the head of Jesus? This is Max Locato. Could it be that this piece of wood is a picture of God's devotion, a symbol of his passion to tell the world about his son. Pilate intended the sign to threaten and mock the Jews, but God had another purpose. Every passerby could read the sign, for every passerby could read Hebrew, Latin, or Greek. In the language of culture, Christ was declared king in them all. There's no language he will not speak. Which leads us to the delightful question, what language is he speaking to you? I'm referring to the day-to-day drama of your life. God does speak, you know. He speaks any language that we will understand. This is Max Lucado. This is the Faith Radio Network. Listen anywhere, anytime, online at MyFaithRadio.com. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.